have people draw tables. Mm -hmm. and, and at that table was their board of directors, their personal board of directors, and fill in the mentors in your life or people that have made a significant difference in your life and why. And, and what do they do for you? And are you still nurturing those um, relationships today? What do, you, what do you get from each of them? And then how do you give that back? So I truly do believe uh, mentors can take you from you know, where you are to where you want to be and, and be really permanent parts of your life. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Talent Playbook Podcast. My name is Jason Ferrara. I'm the Chief Marketing and Strategy Officer at Outmatch and your host for the podcast. Our podcast focuses on strategies for transforming your world of work. So during each podcast, we highlight someone who's transformed their organization or industry in a significant way. Today's guest is Kelly Vallade, the President and CEO of TDN2K. If you're unfamiliar with TDN2K, I highly recommend you check them out, especially if you're in the restaurant industry. They provide data to the restaurant industry specifically to help restaurants manage and balance people and profits. Kelly has had a long and distinguished career in the restaurant industry from starting her career as a restaurant host of a big boy to becoming the president of Chili's Grill and Bar. In fact, she told me that in the 22 years she worked at Brinker International, she held 30 different roles in that company. She's got a tremendous amount of valuable experience. One of the things you'll notice about Kelly right away is what a clear and concise communicator she is. Not only does she get to the heart of the question quickly, but she does it in a tangible way where you really understand exactly what she means and where she's coming from. Kelly is also just intensely curious and caring. So listen for how she refers to her colleagues as family and her reasons for doing so. In fact, when I pointed out to her that that's what she was saying, she was generally surprised. She doesn't even realize that she calls her colleagues family, but there's a great reason why she does. Her strategy for journaling is really an important part and how journaling has helped her grow and help her grow the careers of others. She gives two great questions in this interview that really get to the heart of company culture, how to create it, how to maintain it, how to drive company culture. And like many of the great leaders I've had the privilege of interviewing, she really knows how to connect HR and operations, and she's not afraid to roll up her sleeves and do the work herself. So I'm sure you'll enjoy Kelly's insight. There are tons of examples and lots of takeaways during our conversation. So without further delay, here is the Talent Playbook Podcast with Kelly Vallade. Hey, Kelly, thanks for being on the podcast today. We're really excited to have you. Well, good morning. Thanks for having me, Jason. So um, as we prepared for this conversation, Kelly, I, I wanted to make sure that we covered different phases of your career and, and covered a, a nice a nice uh, spectrum there to get people to understand what you've done and 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 you know your your viewpoint on building companies and building cultures so I think the best way to start here today if you would can you just describe your job today and how long you've been doing that job my job so that's a great question it's, it's uh interesting question as of late because my job is very new and very different from what I have been doing. 
So I'm spending now, uh, I am now the president and chief executive officer for TDN2K, which is the parent company of People Report, Black Box Intelligence, and White Box Social Intelligence. So most people know us uh, primarily by Black Box, but we have three amazing products and we support the restaurant industry, a data analytics and benchmarking company that supports our brands in helping them balance people and profits. Um, I had just I had just started two months ago. I am in that stage of I think I now know what I don't know. So it's a <laughs> weird place to be yep. because I spent uh, the last 22 years at Brinker International. Um, and then most recently, my position was brand president for Chili's Grill and Bar. So very different. I, I left that position after a great run. And actually, um, they're doing really well right now. So I, yep. I kind of orchestrated this exit after 22 years to do something a little bit different. Uh, to support the industry in a different way. So very different and an exciting change for me, a different, uh, just completely different look at the business and a way to support the industry overall, an industry I'm, I'm very, very passionate about. Yeah. So, so I want to get into that, um, passion in the, of the restaurant industry because you're, you're right. You're passionate about it. And I think you have some great insight, but I, um, two months in the new role, I would think that, um, I, I love the idea that you, know what you, you now know what you don't know. Um, I would also think though there's a lot of energy there, right? So tell me a little bit about, about just kind of your feelings to two months in, right? What do you, where do you, where do you want to take this and, and what do you, how do you feel about it? Well, that's a, it's, I've done a lot of thinking about that actually. I'm getting ready to do my first team offsite, my leadership team uh, and I are going offsite. We're actually having the offsite at my house this coming week. And it's a lot of what we're, this is a lot of what we'll talk about actually. What are we excited about? Where is the, where are the growth opportunities? What's the best path? This is a, if you go back to when People Report was created, it was created by our founder, Joni Doolin, and then later Wally Doolin. So the two founders who are my bosses and my mentors are the folks that created this business. And if you go back to when People Report was created, it's 25 years. And at 25 years, you, you really look at it and say, okay, it's an, it's an inflection point. It's a really exciting time for us because coming into this, I understood the product from the user standpoint because at Brinker we were users of the product, uh, faithful users of the product and longstanding members of the product. Uh, but at this point, we're now looking at where do we go next and, and how do we, one, get deeper into the industry with our products so people really do understand the ability we have to connect workforce data with guest satisfaction data, and then really translate that into those that do the best at those two are the ones with the best sales and traffic. We actually have a really unique product, but one that has been uh, has grown up until this point really from a lot of word of mouth. Uh, we've secured our place in the industry as a leader, but it's I think at this point it's what will what is the best best path path to grow. Uh, and the best way to grow for us going forward. Yeah. And then frankly, if you don't, if you didn't know us from word of mouth, how do you know us? And then what do you know about us? And there's a little bit of uh, trying to articulate the brand's offering and our purpose a little bit uh, more strongly. Yeah. And that gets me very excited. So it's like any other place, totally different offering than what I'm used to. But like anything else, you have to go in and really understand the brand. Who do we serve? Why do we do it? And, and how do our customers see us? Uh, to be able to really make movements and progress in any company. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of really great, what I think people would call marketing challenges, but are frankly business operations challenges, right? I mean, you can't, you can't operate if you don't yes. understand the market, the customer base and those things. So, Absolutely. 
So, so how did tell tell me how you got you get started? I mean, uh, in in your career, I, I know I know a little bit. You've had you know you obviously are in a big job now. You you were in a big job before. How, how did you get started, and how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, great. I have this really um, interesting and not so unlike, very typical actually for a lot of folks in the restaurant industry. And it's one of the reasons I love it so much because uh, you can really start at, at the bottom and you can work your way up if you. Um, I think apply yourself and are really open to the possibilities the restaurant industry has. So at, at 16, my story begins at the day I turned 16, I walked into a TJ's Big Boy <laughs> that was around the corner from my house in upstate New York, uh, asked for, you know, applied for a job, got hired as a hostess. And within a couple of years, I was hostess, you know, server, trainer, um, shift lead, and had taken on a bunch of other opportunities as they would come to me. And I was yeah. going to school, of course, and, uh, you know, put money away and saving money for college. And uh, when I, whenever possible, you know, took on those additional responsibilities so that I could grow. But also because it was, it was afforded to me. It was, it was there. It was a yeah. way to, uh, you know, way to pay for college, most importantly. But also, I found a connection. I found a place where I could really feel seen and and heard, and a place where I felt like I could make a difference. Um, I worked in several concepts after that. I'm still working my way through college. Got my MBA at Syracuse University, and at that point, I was studying human resources and marketing um, as, as concentrations within my MBA and kept thinking, I love operations, but I really love this idea of HR or marketing within the restaurant space. And so very, very lofty and yet very specific. I mean, my goals were pretty specific at that point. I luckily um, fell into, literally fell into a company based in Dallas that was doing recruiting and consulting for the restaurant industry. So mm. basically doing HR work for only restaurants. Uh, didn't know that existed until I got this cold call. <laughs> I followed up with them. I, I later did an internship with them. Uh, that company was Joni Doolin's company prior to PDN2K and prior to People Report. So this goes back 25 years. Uh, I, I was an intern, and then they flew me to Dallas. I moved to Dallas as soon as I graduated with my MBA with nothing but my clothes. <laughs> Stole my car, got on a plane, and never looked back. Uh, and so for, you know, the last 25 years, I've been doing either human resources. I stayed only for uh, a couple of years at that company and decided I wanted to go get, you know, really needed to, if I was going to consult, I really needed to be in a company and learn what it was like inside the four walls of a brand mm-hmm. and uh, went to TJ Fridays for a little bit and then Brinker for the last 22 years. And my career is a combination of human resources, kind of 50-50, you know, operations early in my career, HR kind of in the middle. Um, was the senior vice president of Chili's at one point and then moved into operations as CEO and then president. So, I, I, again, I just I continue to be a, such an advocate for this industry for so many reasons, but because you really can, um, you really can move up. You really can if you apply yourself and you really listen to feedback you get. Um, there's just a crazy amount of opportunities for leaders in this industry. Yeah, uh, you know, one of the things I love about your story is the combination of um, HR and operations, and I think that that's really what's what's important to me. There, I, I think, and and the people I see in my career, I'd like your your input on this. You know, the the best HR leaders are the ones that have operational experience. Um, possibly the best operators are the ones that have HR experience because they understand mm. how the two blend together. How do you, how do you think about that in, in your career? Is that, that mix important? Do you see other people with that mix? Um, let's talk a little bit about that. I, I absolutely think it's critical. 
uh, I just happened to, uh, for me in my career, it was unique in that I had a passion for HR. And the more I learned about HR, uh, then the more I learned about operations, rather, and the more I learned about the business, the better I became at HR. Mm-hmm. And so it just started to evolve in that I wasn't necessarily always just staying in the HR lane. And over time, I got invited to more office meetings. I got invited at one point to to have a uh, operations council that was, when Brinker had nine brands, I was supporting all the brands with an operations council as an HR leader. And I was bringing those leaders together to try and talk about how to improve their businesses. So I had crazy opportunities afforded to me just because I was paying attention to the business. And I think as an HR professional, you're absolutely spot on. You have to demonstrate your knowledge and your business acumen and really be a continuous learner and be thinking about what's really happening in the restaurants. You got to be in the restaurants. That's a, that's a given, but you really have to be constantly learning uh, about the struggles of operations. And then on the flip side, to your point, you have to, the greatest operators, the best operators are always the ones that are the best in on the people side of the business. And they really understand it and see their HR leader and as a partner and as a co-pilot. And really, you know, if you ask them, who could you not, you know, who could you not survive with if you didn't have, and you want that to be, I'd have to have my HR partner by my side. Yeah. Marketing, all the other things are important too. But that link, especially today with how crazy challenging it is for everybody, that that link is really critical. So you mentioned being in the restaurants. So in an HR capacity, were were you in the restaurants? Did you go visit the restaurants um, when you were more in an operations role? Did did that role require you to be, unless you were working in a restaurant, did that require you to be out in the restaurants? Let's talk a little about that. I think at most brands, uh, I think in most brands, this is probably the case anywhere today. You really have to be in the restaurant. And for me, I was all, it, it started that way, and I, it was that way the entire time, regardless of which position, whether I was running comp and benefits or I was running you know, inside of a brand. Sometimes you'd be a little bit more distant from it, depending on the role. But regardless, whether you were in restaurants, you know, if you're going to do focus groups, go do them in restaurants. If you were going to uh, go talk to operators, make sure you went to them. You know, it was easy, especially for a, a brinker with so many restaurants in Dallas, it was easy to say, hey, let's have the, let's have the conversation here. Right? Go to the restaurants. Go when they're not busy, but get in the restaurants. But I will tell you the other thing, because I started in, in training and recruiting, you know, specifically in training, to write training material, you can't, you, you can't do that effectively if you really don't know what's happening. So uh, I, I've written numerous training audits. Uh, what should you look for to certify a training restaurant? You got to, then you're talking about line checks and yeah. inventory and you got to do those things to really be able to then pull back and, you know, kind of see the forest through the trees and write all those materials. So any way you look at it, regardless of role, you really do have to be in the restaurants and the operators take notice of that. And if you can do a line check as an HR professional uh, and you can find things and, and really hold your own. And one, one person gave me amazing advice one time that just look at the same five things, no matter what kitchen, no matter what brand, because at one point we had multiple brands, of course, mm-hmm. Brinker, no matter what brand, don't get overwhelmed. Look for the same five things and you will establish credibility every single time. Because they won't know if you don't know the other 80 items or 80 things, but they will, and you got to pick the right five things, but they right. will understand. If you can do a line check, if you can go in to a walk-in and, and understand how to look at shelf life and how to understand if the product's moving correctly, that you'll gain credibility pretty quickly. So I, I love this idea. So you're, you're, uh, you're in a variety of roles. They're what I would think of as, as corporate roles. I mean, did you, did you, 
go wait tables? Did you pick up the the host duty for an afternoon because you had that experience in your past? Did you expedite? Did you, you know, like what, what were some of the jobs that you went and did, uh, you know, when mm-hmm. you were visiting restaurants? Yeah. Well, certainly when I became chief operating officer, that became, uh, very much, you know, part of the everyday visits and everyday life. So yeah. at least a couple times a month out in restaurants and we would do two to three day visits in a market, maybe multiple markets in a week. And those visits, um, those were, you know, awesome. And yeah, would I go to, it's a great question about going to the hostess stand first. Of course you go to the hostess stand first. <laughs> it's the easiest thing to literally grab some menus and look at, you know, regardless if you started in the kitchen or not, um, that's where I started. So the right. front of the house was always strength. I could always talk to guests. And by the way, you want to be doing that too. So if you're going to, part of being in the restaurants was also making sure you were role modeling what you expected and what you trained on and what you, you know, what you evaluated people on. So if you were evaluating performance as a hospitality leader, you couldn't not go in and talk to guests. And, and you had to set that example. And it was one of the best things to do is just walk around and find out what guests think of the brand mm-hmm. and what they thought of your latest menu items, et cetera. So, uh, lots to be learned by staying out front. It certainly was my comfort zone. But again, when it came to the back, that's when the five things I always knew to look for kicked in. Uh, I would expedite at times, although it could be challenging. You didn't want me there on a Friday night doing that. <laughs> uh, but I would, but I could run food and yeah. carry a tray and I could read a, a seating chart and I could run food. So yeah, I definitely would just pitch in where I could. And you'd walk in and, and they would know, they would appreciate, your operators would appreciate whatever you would have, were able to contribute because they knew you didn't do it every day. So they knew at my level, you know, and over time, you can't be an expert at, at, at making the hamburger, although I would do that too. Uh, if we had a rollout that was happening or something specific that we were, it was our focus for the quarter and we had culinary focuses every quarter, you know, uh, yeah, I'd go in and say, let's smash a burger. Let's make a burger, yeah. make a perfectly specced burger together and, you know, role model that too. So. Well, that's just an excellent leadership lesson, right? It's really not about working in a restaurant. It's, it's really about how you lead a group of people and say, I, I care about this business. I understand the business. I care about the client. And, and here's the way I'm going to show that. Um, and, and so it, it really is about leadership. It's not about, it's not about making a burger, right? It's about, it's about. Yes, leadership. I, yeah. I think so. Yes, I think so. And what an amazing way to connect with the team members as well and understand what's really getting in their way. You can't, again, you can't do that if you don't, if you're not there, you can't, you can't do that well. Yeah. So, um, okay. So, so that long time spent in the restaurant industry, different job today. So describe a day in the life at your job today. Very different. So I, I no longer wake up and go to food cutting and, uh, tastings where hmm. I'm, I'm eating burgers or wings at 8 a.m., 9 a.m., <laughs> uh, which was very common when I was in the office. Uh, before. So in this role, it's again, I'm learning. Uh, so I've spent a lot of time right now learning my uh, clients and members and trying to get to know them, corresponding with them, literally introducing myself. I've been on the road doing uh, to several big markets where we've got a good presence of clients and trying to meet them and getting meetings just to sit down. And I'm spending a lot of time understanding, it's, it's, it's very almost surreal, understanding my clients' businesses on the inside out because, mm-hmm. of course, I couldn't see all that. I would study big, our, our big competitors of uh, Chili's for years and listen to analyst calls and uh, wonder about what was behind, you know, the calls or what you could read about. Yeah. And, um, and so I'm now digging in, understanding all of the numbers, the people metrics, the traffic and sales numbers, 
and uh, their guest sediment and, and able to really then when we go in, it's a it's a, an a, a awesome challenge and a great conversation. And from somebody that really has HR as a passion and, and part of my heart, uh, to be able to go in and say, we can show you the connection between these three things. Uh, I'm digging in writing presentations literally every day as part of my job. So, uh, so a quick question about, about that, because, because I think what, you know, what you're describing here yeah. is what you just described, which is this idea that huh. as a leader, you're doing a lot of this work from a learning perspective. Um, I, I would assume that that's, that's what you're saying, right? We, at, even at TDN2K, like there, there's a lot of stuff you have to do. You personally have to do. There aren't team members who do all this work for you. You know, there are teams. So certainly there's an amazing team at TDN to say they're different, uh, different makeup, different competencies. Although at the end of the day, um, great team members that I'm surrounded by that know the data. And what we're doing right now is I'm learning the data, the technical side, uh, the ins and outs of our product, um, what's behind the engine. <laughs> and I'm teaching them and, and we're learning together what we both know about these brands. And, and what's making these brands tick and how our data can help them uh, and really be a catalyst for the right behaviors and the change that could improve their businesses. Yeah. So it's fascinating work. And yeah, I'm, I'm constant learning mode, trying to understand the ins and outs of each of these brands. But again, once we're competitors, uh, now I'm able to go in and really uh, try and connect the dots for them. So yeah, yeah it's really cool. Yeah. So I'd like to talk about um, your your role in hiring employees, your role in in building culture. So let's start with employees first. You know, what are some in, in any of your roles? Like, you know, I don't, I don't need, we don't need to zero in on 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 one specific company, but what you know, what do you look for in in an employee in, in an employee to an organization? If you're the one who's responsible for hiring them, what are the kinds of things you're looking for, and what you think will be a successful employee? Uh, yeah, I think it's that I, I probably subscribe to what you hear a lot of people talk about in terms of understanding and looking for people that could be a great fit, although I know that we're, we're going to be careful with that word sometimes, mm -hmm. that, that idea that it's someone that has the right attitude, the right personality, the right hospitality gene, uh, and the right kind of servant approach, uh, along with then, you know, the right technical skills and the right competencies for that job. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm always... You know, it's some of the stuff, some of it really never changes when you think about, I remember first learning how to recruit, you know, almost textbook, Here's, here are the things to look for and doing, you know, working on interview guides and teaching operators then how to recruit. And some of the basics of, do they walk in, smile, have a, a quick pace about it. Some of those really basic things still matter, whether you're hiring for, you know, a hostess or server or whether you're hiring for someone coming in you know, to work for you in your marketing department. Um, skills matter, experience matters, depending on the job. But what, what you really want to see is this someone that I can see connecting with our team, contributing to our team, enhancing the culture, right, being a champion of our culture, uh, and, and then hitting the ground running and, and making a difference. If the first part of that equation, the, you know, as many would call it, the 51% of mm -hmm. is the personality there, is it the right um, is that the right kind of, um, you know, skills as a servant leader, then, then the other stuff is almost secondary. Yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned servant leadership. Um, many people that I've interviewed for this podcast talk about servant leadership as well. So def define what that means for you. 
Yeah, I think servant leadership is about uh, a passion for serving others. At the end of the day, it's about a passion for serving others. It's the difference between pointing to here's the where the ladies' room is, the men's room is, and walking somebody to in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the difference between, and again, my example would be restaurant examples, but either either job, that's what I do. I support restaurants. So it's the difference between walking down the aisle, coming in or out of a restaurant, having someone say goodbye, or it's, it's that difference of I'm going to go that extra mile because I have a passion for serving. And so I have a passion for serving others, serving my team members, you know, peers, um, and serving the guests, you know, and serving our community. So being a servant leader, I think, is about having a mindset that says I am better when I'm serving, I'm better for it, and uh, I get that much in return as well by, by having kind of a servant's heart. I've never met anybody that you'd look at and say, was a servant leader that you didn't get inspired by or, you know, incredibly grateful for? And they come in all shapes and sizes. You know, anybody can be a servant leader. Yeah. I love the phrase, I'm better when I'm serving. That really, that really is a mindset, right? That really is a way that Uh you think about how to, how to approach your next action, right? Your, your day, your, your week, month, career. That's, that's really great. And, and how does, you you talked a little bit about championing culture. Um, I think there's a lot to unpack in the phrase championing culture, but the first thing I, I would ask is what, what is culture to you? How do you define and then develop slash teach culture to, to a group of employees? Yep. Great question. First, I think culture is, uh, two, well, two things that mean the same thing. It's the way we do things around here and it's what you do when no one is looking. Mm-hmm. So it, it really is the way things operate in an organization. Uh, the way you teach or the way, well, first of all, identifying, you know, culture is, is critical. So can coming into TDN2K right now, a lot of what I'm doing is identifying and uh, articulating the culture mm-hmm. as it is today. Mm-hmm. And, and articulating it in a way that says, I recognize the heritage, the foundation, the lineage, um, the passion behind what we've got, and I want to take that to the next level, right? If there's tweaking to be made or things that could improve, I'm learning that and asking that of our team members. And then we're going we're gonna to clearly start to clearly articulating what it is and what it isn't because it's different. And there's no bad, well, there's, there are some bad cultures, but um, there's nothing, you know, bad about about culture unless it's ill-defined. If it's ill-defined, you have a really hard time, especially in a small entrepreneurial-like place, to cultivate that culture over time. You have to define what it is today. You have to define what ideal state looks like, you know, with tweaks, with going with the grain, which I would always recommend you go with the grain because if you try and completely flip a culture on its side uh, and create something brand new, um, I think you're likely to fail. If you look for the things most important to the heritage, most important to the culture, and try not to change but maybe tweak or improve or go with that grain uh, and demonstrate what will make it even stronger, then I think you have a much more likely chance of success. Um, So I think you define it. You then talk about ideal or future state, and then you recognize, tell stories, and you reward when you see that that positive, uh, the positive behaviors that lead to the kind of culture you're looking for. And that's not, that's not hard to do. You just put the right systems in to do it and make a focused, concerted effort, aligned effort, you know, to recognize around what you want it to be. And is that, is that something that you 
let everybody know you're doing? Is this something that you just do and you're, and you're looking around the company and waiting for people to exhibit examples of the culture? Or you know, are, you, are you freely communicating this among all the employees? Hey, here's one of the things I'm doing. One of the things we're going to try to define and, and move forward. No, you absolutely involve everyone. I have the benefit now uh, of a smaller company to some extent. But we took this on, and I've done this wherever I've been, frankly. Uh, not, you know, not, not rebranding, not repositioning, but just what is it and what would make it stronger. And, and so, yes, you absolutely. So I've met with every one of our team members. It's a small, it's a much smaller organization. I was able to do that. And what I did in every one of those conversations, I've got a journal and every one of those conversations is in that. And I would ask what's great about it. What would make it better? And so uh, part of what we're in the process of doing now is telling everybody what they said. People love to hear you tell them what they said, right? My feedback was heard. Um, and then we're defining what is most important to, to protect and then what we're willing to kind of push on. From there, we'll define values, even articulate purpose a little more strongly, and they'll all be involved in doing that. And then when we formalize the, these are the behaviors that demonstrate you're a champion of this culture, they'll know that too because we'll create that system. Yes, you do have to put some systems in, in place. And, and that could be as little as uh, recognition in written form uh, recognizing in a public forum, which is almost always the best way to do that, uh, and, and then figuring out what the kind of motivation is for people. And that's human, that's human behavior no matter where you are. If I want to see you, you know, do this behavior, I tie it to what I saw, I show you the impact it made and the outcome from that. And those outcomes are tied to our key results, and we all start rolling in that same direction. So, yeah, you have to involve them. And it's fun. It's fun. Yeah, you know, I I agree with you. I've been I've been involved in a couple of different culture projects and and I, done well. It's very it's very it can be very fun. I you know you said two really important things about um, defining culture. I think that's worth repeating. One is what's great, and the other is what would make it better. Those are two really simple questions that that I I bet you get some pretty in depth answers to. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you'd be amazed. Not only do you get in-depth answers, but you get the same answers for the most part. Mm. For the most part, you know, I, you you walk away with a lot of alignment. Um, I think when you get into more specifics about where to take the business and things like that, that's where you won't. You, you know, that's that's our job then to take that and turn, translate that into growth strategies and priorities. But when you ask those two simple questions, if the culture exists at all, I mean, then there always is something to work from you're going to start to hear some very similar comments. Um, so yeah, you get, you get some pretty good answers. How did, how did you learn to do that? I mean, there, it wasn't a class that you t- took probably. <laughs> how did you learn to do that? You know, I think, so just as I said, it's human behavior. If you find out what people are looking for uh, and you exhibit those behaviors and it gets you a result and somebody calls out that you did this and it got a result, uh, then you start to do it again and again. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm a big proponent of, so first of all, I have studied a lot of HR, read a lot of HR books mm-hmm. and leadership books. But beyond that, um, you know, it's something that happened for me personally. Uh, I have a really good example too. So I got into the Chili's environment as the COO. And of course, I right prior to that, right previous to that, I was the senior vice president of HR. And I wasn't in that role for a very long time at Chili's before I was promoted into chief operating officer role with a lot of people saying, what, you know, um, and by the way, it wasn't at a great time for the brand stock price was $4, uh, had not been achieving good results. So, you know, wait a minute, we're going to turn this thing around and we're going to put 
the HR person in this role. So it was really critical for me that people thought I understood operations. Mm-hmm. I mean, job one was make sure people know and, and establish some credibility. Even if I was questioning myself, which I was, sure. uh, go out and, and literally ask the questions and get help and say, help me understand what you need um, from your COO, what you need from us as, as your leadership team. And I kept that journal. And about five years into my COO role, I was promoting uh, someone from the field into a, a critical vice president role at the office, and it would be reporting to me. And I stayed in touch with this person, but when I promoted him, I took out the sheet of paper from the journal um, and read his feedback to me from day one when I got into that role and shared everything he had called out and, and really demonstrated that a lot of what he told me was a catalyst for me to go back out, ask, different, ask questions differently, you know, the impact that that made on me, but also on the brand. So to him, it said, wow, you know, she saved that. Um, to the rest of the people in the room, and it was a big public public forum, mm-hmm. it said, you can be heard here, even in a big brand. Uh, and it also said, you know, uh, I, you know, I was heard, and it made a difference. So I think the reaction I would get to doing things like that over time, you know, if you're smart, you just keep doing them. <laughs> and I haven't figured out a better way to understand what to go do in an organization if you're not, you know, leveraging people. I will say, in the interest of Anything for, formal, you know, um, I have taken some classes where we've done simulations and, mm. and some of the best training I've had was, here's the problem, go figure out how to solve it. And the, the answer almost always, without a doubt, regardless of if you go to Harvard or somewhere else, is it lies with talking to your team and building a great team and having an aligned team that's all rowing in the same direction. Uh, so it, you won't, no one can figure it out by themselves. So. Yeah. Think there's probably more than you wanted there on the answer, but it's a few things for me. No, that's that's a great answer. I mean, I, you know, multifaceted. Some of it's uh, formal instruction. Some of it's self-taught. Mm-hmm. You you mentioned something though that you've mentioned uh, twice in this conversation specifically, and that's about a journal. And and um, you and I hadn't talked about that in in any conversation we've had. Um, when did you start journaling? Do you keep these? You obviously you keep these journals. Uh, how did you learn to do that? What what, you, what kind of things are you writing down? Like, t- talk about this concept of journaling. I think is incredibly interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so it's more probably business journaling than personal journaling, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I do both. Uh, I probably got that advice. Hmm. So I'm a very extroverted leader. By I'm just extroverted. <laughs> There's no other way to say it. So <laughs> I so I, te- I tend to. Um, I'm pretty demonstrative. I'm also Italian from the Northeast. You know, it's, it's a contributor. It's not an excuse. Right. But I, um, in, in person, you can usually read, you know, my face. I'm demonstrative. And, and at times, that's, that's not a strength. That's not always a strength. Um, well, it, it can be a negative as a leader. For me, journaling started with don't react, think, and, and write it down. Um, it started from a simple feedback session with someone after an assessment was done on, you know, after I had completed an assessment, um, after that assessment was done, the coach basically said, you here's a, here's a recommendation. I had watched a video on myself, right? Yeah. I, this assessment was a full on deal where um, I was being assessed for a leadership position. So it was a couple of day assessment. There was video and I watched, you know, I watched myself and really said, I need a better way to do what I'm doing. Yeah. Uh, I need a, I need a strategy. And so it started from that. Uh, it truly started from 
how can I be a more effective leader and, and really process more? Introverts do that very, very well. They process before they speak. Right. Uh, extroverts, it's the opposite. So started that way, and then the idea of how do I learn, you know, and, and, I, and I did numerous roles at Brink. I, I probably had 30 different roles at Brink during 22 years, was given a, a, the opportunity to do a lot of job rotations. And when you want to get to know new team members, it just became something that I did. I, I, would buy, I actually would buy a new journal um, for new challenges and then keep it, file it away when I was done uh, or move on to something else. So um, personally, I do it also from time to time, having had great coaches and mentors around where, where I'm getting my energy. Um, it helps me manage my time. At times, I'll, I'll, I'll take a minute to reflect on where I've spent my time in a week or a month. And if I'm not feeling like I'm accomplishing something uh, or being effective or efficient, you know, I tend to then write down where am I spending my time? Where am I getting my energy? You know, everybody, when you clean your house, you clean the stuff you like to clean first. Right? <laughs> my kitchen is always, my kitchen's always very clean. My laundry room's not, you right. know, because I don't like to do that. So it's the same way when you manage your career and you manage your job, uh, to really constantly be learning, you have to check against, am I doing the stuff that I just like to do? Am I really stretching myself outside my comfort zone? And the journaling is a way for me to kind of keep that in balance yeah. and keep my energy up with the things I really do love to do. Right. So find a way to make room for the things I love to do uh, in a job. Thank you for that. It's a really great yeah. explanation of journaling. And I, and I should say that the things that I don't like to clean in my house are the things that I teach my kids how to clean. <laughs> and then I go on to the things that I, that I like to clean. So they're very good at cleaning bathrooms. Awesome. Good. Yeah. That's an awesome strategy. That's a very good strategy. I should throw the journal out. Into it. Let's do it. I, I think I do that too. <laughs> that's a great, that's a great strategy. Um, so you mentioned mentors. I'd love to talk a bit about that. You know, have, have you had mentors in your career? Uh, can, can you talk about one specifically that, that was perhaps uh, more meaningful than another or, you know, how do you think about mentors in your career? Yeah, absolutely. So I wouldn't, I truly wouldn't be where I am today without some of the great mentors I've had in my life that have, that have not been uh, a one and done or one year and we're done, or in fact, we're not, so maybe started formally, but then became very informal over time. Um, so I'm not only a big fan of and very grateful for the mentors I've had, but I, I make sure uh, that I'm also in my role, whatever it is, mentoring others informally or formally. So love, 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 love mentoring. Um, Joni and Wally Doolin, you know, so they're my bosses. So I think bosses can be mentors. Uh, it takes on a different form when they're official bosses. So they hadn't been for 25 years. They are again. But in <laughs> right. that 25 years, um, Joni and both, Joni and Wally, um, they were both mentors to me. They became an extension of my family. They are family. Um, Roz Mallet also was uh, a former boss at one time. Uh, and then it's now a franchisee, you know, taking on great things mm. with her own company, uh, continues to be literally almost by the book, uh, a close friend, family member. But when I sit down with Rob Mallet and have lunch or dinner, I have to, I literally have to be prepared to not just talk about so family and friends and how's life and how this, and then it goes into, and how, how have you done with things we talked about last time? We said we'd carve out a half hour for this. We said we'd talk about this. So you literally have to show up knowing, just like if you had a personal trainer at the gym, you have to show up knowing, I got to, you know, I got to be ready for this conversation, which is yeah. awesome. Um, I, so I'm a big fan of 
you know, multiple people in your life that serve different purposes and can help you with things that aren't strengths. Uh, so Rob has something different offer than Joni than does Wally. Um, I've, I've had people that have truly just taught me to be more vulnerable. Um, and those are mentors I continue to have. So I think you, I literally used to do this exercise when I was in HR, have people draw, uh, a, a, um, like, like a cartoon, not a cartoon, like a boardroom table, a table. Mm-hmm. And, and at that table was their board of directors, their personal board of directors, and, and fill in the mentors in your life or people that have made a significant difference in your life and why and, and what do they do for you and are you still nurturing those um, relationships today? What do, you, what do you get from each of them? And then how do you give that back? So I truly do believe uh, mentors can take you from – you know, where you are to where you want to be and, and be really permanent parts of your life. And did you, did you, did you seek out, do you seek out people? So if I, if I think about drawing a table and and putting people on there, you know, maybe the first time you do that in your life, there are a lot of personal friends that you've known for years. You may find not all the seats are filled and, and you have needs in certain areas. Did, did you go seek out specific mentors for specific uh, areas that you, you thought, okay, well, I, I need to understand, fi- whatever, I need to understand finance better, so I need to go find a, a, mm. a mentor in the finance area, something like that. Yeah, uh, yes, some of it, um, some by accident probably, and then some very formal, I need to understand finance better, I'd like to work with this person, and then seeking out that person, or asking your boss, this is what I want to focus on this year, I'd like to spend more time with this person. Um, so yeah, it ha- it's, it's exactly how it happens. Um, I think what you find when you do this board of directors and you ask people to list, you know, who's there and you, and you lay it out in terms of who do you trust, um, who would you trust with, you know, with anything, your career, but even personally, um, people that have made a big difference in your life and you, you don't describe it as a mentor. You just say, put those people down. You find most were bosses at some point, mm-hmm. um, right? They were, they were either somebody you worked with or a boss and the impact a leader can have then becomes really apparent to people in the room uh, that you're talking to. So it, it, it can be a boss that you, once you don't work for him anymore, ask, can we still do this? You know, you've mm-hmm. been a mentor to me and I'd, lo- I'd like to keep that relationship going. And then you invest in that. You make time for it. You know, I make time for Rod now at basically every month and vice versa so that we are always staying in touch. Yeah, oh, that's nice. Yeah, making time for that I think is important too as you get, as you get busier and busier and take on new roles and certainly it, at, at Brinker, you were busy 30 roles in 22 years. Uh, you can't let the busyness get in the way of, of, of mentorship, right? It's important. Uh, so I, I've just a couple of um, questions that may seem unrelated, but I think are all, all help us understand the way you think about, about business. What are, the, what are the three key metrics that you use to run your business. And you can think about this as, Hey, this is what I did when I was, when I was at uh, Chili's or this is what, you know, the way I think about TDN 2K. What are those key metrics, like three key metrics that you can't run your business without? Well, if I were to combine, that's uh, a great question. Um, if I were to combine, you know, I hate to say the P and L, but if I were to think about this, you, you've got to understand the top and your bottom line, which mm-hmm. is that one. <laughs> I would sure. say as one, I mean, you have to understand your business and what's driving your business. Um, so the metrics of your P&L or the specific, the, the basics of uh, key lines that run your business and returns are, are critical. Um, but I'd also then say turnover and engagement of your guests and engagement of your team. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you, you really can't 
and you can't not have those three things. How's my team, you know, how, how, how effective is my team? How effective are they at serving my guests? And then how does that translate into the business results we desire? And how did you measure engagement of team and engagement of guests? Uh, in the prior life, there, uh, we had lots of ways to measure that. So, you know, we had measures for, obviously, we had leading and lagging indicators that we were constantly measuring and we were constantly connecting the dots with. Uh, so we had turnover, obviously, that we got um, from people reports and we would know against the industry and we would know where we were at any given time. Um, guessing, and then we did um, team member engagement surveys twice a year. Mm -hmm. A lot of companies do that. Um, we had uh, guest satisfaction metrics uh, that were pretty pretty detailed and we had 25% of our guests on any given day giving us feedback on our tabletop media in the restaurant. And we also did mystery shops. Um, we also collected research across the industry on how we were doing social media. So lots of guest metrics, really critical to us running the business. Uh, and then obviously we had, we had P&L metrics that were pretty specific. Mm -hmm. <laughs> pretty yeah. specific. Yeah. Um, and you know, and, and so in my new role, we're establishing it's not that they don't exist. We're simplifying them so that everyone understands them. Because if you don't understand them, you can't contribute to the greater cause of, you know, this is a for-profit business um, and one where we want to all celebrate wins and all deliver against uh, those, you know, against the results. So we are framing up how exactly we measure those three things because we have members and we need to know their engagement and their satisfaction. Um, and make sure our clients are happy and we don't lose them. So we have retention metrics in place for that. Um, we have team member metrics. Glassdoor is another, you know, kind of new one. Mm -hmm. That's not new, but, you know, it's becoming more and more important to just say, well, wait a minute, engagement through surveys is this, but what's your Glassdoor rating? So I think mm -hmm. that's fascinating as well. Um, but, yeah, those, those three metrics, I think, no matter where you are, have to establish that and create a way for your teams to understand where you are in all three as well, or they won't work against it or contribute to it. Yeah. They won't know how to. One of the stories I'd like you to tell before we before we you know officially end. I mean, I think I have probably two more questions for you, but but I I love the I'd love for you to tell the the story of um, Chile's involvement with St. Jude uh, because I th I think it hits on a little bit of the um, culture and the style of employees and the and the growth and the entrepreneurism uh, at at Brinker and at Chili's. Can you, can you just give us a little flavor of that story? Yeah, absolutely. Probably one of the things uh, I was most proud to be associated with was the work that we did with St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. In the background there, it's a hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, pretty pretty well known, um, but it's a hospital in Memphis known for um, first being created by the famous Danny Thomas, yep. you know, daughter Marlo Thomas, yep. uh, created by Danny Thomas a very long time ago with the intent that no child should die in the dawn of life. And that no child or family should have to worry about being able to pay to get their child healthy. So it's about cancer and other catastrophic illnesses and curing those children. Um, we have restaurants in, had restaurants, uh, Chili's has restaurants today still in Memphis. And at that time, uh, probably 15 years ago, there was one of the restaurant operators in the location closest to the hospital in Memphis that decided, hey, I, you know, I want to look, I'm a part of this community. It's, a, it's critical that we show our love for the community and be involved with St. Jude. And if you're close, if you were within 100 miles of it, you'd understand how special the place was. But to be right there in that community, they knew they had to do something. Mm -hmm. They decided to, literally, the, the manager at the time decided to create a way that guests could be involved with donating um, their money, with, you know, donating during a visit by coloring in the outline of a pepper. 
of Chili's World was a pepper. And the idea was, what if people would, in return for a dollar donation, um, Danny Thomas also used to say, I'd rather have uh, a million dollars, uh, one dollar from a million people than, than a million dollars from one. Mm-hmm. Because it would, it would mean more people were engaged in touching the lives of those children. Sure. And so it was really founded on that. That manager knew, what if I can get guests to come in and, and really just donate a dollar or three dollars, maybe five dollars, and color this pepper. And in return, what all they did was hang the peppers throughout the restaurant. And so children, of course, of course, children were yeah. coloring the peppers. <laughs> and when they, they were crayons handed out, and children colored the peppers, and their parents gladly, you know, um, put money down uh, and donate. You literally wrote your donation on the back of the pepper. The front of the pepper was hung in the restaurant. So it, it, at that at that time, years ago, and uh, they set a goal to raise. I, I think it was seven hundred dollars, and I think they raised you know three thousand dollars the first Whoa. year. Yeah. Uh, and just doing that, and and literally papering the restaurant with these peppers. Um, from there, obviously it caught attention and it grew from that restaurant to the entire Memphis market uh, and Tennessee market to, you know, getting the intention of everyone at Chili's corporate. And, you know, 15 years ago, there were still a lot of restaurants. It was mm-hmm. not, you know, it was a big company still at that time. And nonetheless, it, it got everyone's attention so much. So, you know, what a, what a gift to have a grassroots effort like that. Um, coming from an operator, a really smart operator with a, a servant heart, right? Um, yeah. And from there, it grew to, in 2009, um, was the first um, ribbon cutting for the Chili's Care Center. And at that point, we had declared we'd raise uh, $50 million to donate to St. Jude, which was a pretty lofty goal and the biggest corporate um, sponsorship at that time. Um, and we raised that early. So in 2015, a year early, we'd raised the $50 million and celebrated that oh. with our team uh, and with the folks at St. Jude. On my watch as, as president, we then resigned uh, and said, well, you know, you can, we will still keep collecting for St. Jude. What's the, let's talk about what we want to do next. And there was a poll. I mean, it, it, like a, you could feel the poll from the operator saying, it's not enough to just say we're going to keep doing it. What's the next goal? Give oh, us the wow. next goal. Yeah. Like we need to crush the next goal. So uh, the Chili's team today is responsible for um, delivering another 30 million. They've already delivered. Uh, at this point, it's probably close to 70. But uh, but they're they're set, they're setting out to deliver another 30, and they are the namesake of the school that's on the, the St. Jude campus. There's a school so the children don't lose a year or lose time when they go back into their communities after being cured, and that's the Chili's is the namesake of that now. So it's a huge sense of pride. We we met at the time. I was able, being at, at Chili's, obviously able to meet so many families we touched. Those families became our family. Um, we stayed in contact with them. Those families would travel around on behalf of Chili's and St. Jude um, during the campaign. And it was, it, it, it was incredibly moving and special to be a part of. Yeah. Thank you for, for telling that story. I mean, it's just so illustrative of this whole conversation we've had so far right so it's about servant leadership and it's about being an entrepreneur and it's about um learning and it's about giving people opportunity and it's about culture and it's about the right employees i mean you can't do any of that if you don't uh if you don't have a focus on all those on all those things absolutely one of the things we got to a point having raised money year over year you know year in year out we were raising money campaign one to keep it fresh so we were constantly coming into the next year thinking, how do we beat what we did last year? And it was 
four million one year and five million next and maybe slip down to four and a half. And one year we got the idea to create what we called Hope Captain and mm. said, why don't we put it in why don't we put the team members in charge and create a Hope Captain for every restaurant and put them in charge of figuring out how we outdo ourselves every year and how we keep keep people engaged with created these t shirts. You know, the T-shirts that the team members are wearing all the time were T-shirts with an outline of a pepper as well. Mm-hmm. So things like color your color their world would be on the shirt, and it would be really clear um, that we were raising money. But also the team members would color in their shirt. They would actually decorate their own shirt. And that was almost like it was an expectation. You've got to decorate your shirt. you got to mm-hmm. be, you know, be engaged, decorate your shirt. Team members would put on their shirt things important to them. And I will, I promise you, never forget the day I met a hope captain. Not only, by the way, we raised like three times the amount of money that next year after we engaged with Hope Captain, wow. um, because they then were in charge of creating the energy in the restaurants, right? Mm-hmm. Far better than what we were able to do before that. So it totally flipped it on its side and re-energized the whole campaign. But I was able to meet a woman named Darlene in Houston. I'll never forget this. I walked in and when they decorate their shirts, it was an easy way to connect with people and understand what was important to them. Why does your shirt have the Marvel comics on it? Why does it have right. this on it? But my son. My son drew that, and my son did my shirt. A lot of people would have their kids doing their shirt. Yeah. Um, or an art student, you know, would show that they they were an artist, and and then would do shirts, you know, to sell as part of the campaign. Um, but this particular woman was wearing a shirt that said "My Reason," and and as I got closer to her, I could see that it said "My Reason" inside the pepper. As I got closer, there were pictures, and the pictures are, were of her son who mm-hmm. had passed away. Her son was five years old and passed away of a brain tumor. And had brain cancer, and he wasn't a patient of St. Jude, but uh, the Chili's family had helped her at that time to be present for her son, to be with her son, and even take time off and help pay for her rent so she could be with her son. Um, her husband's company did not, and, and she kind of carried the burden of being with him um, until he passed. And her reason for raising money for St. Jude was really clear, and she was a hope captain wanting to and wanting to be the hope captain for that reason and wanting to make sure that everybody knew her story for that reason. And I will never forget, I know what she looks like. I know what the shirt looked like. Um, and it was those kind of things that wasn't like that. And that Chili's culture really is still to this day special um, because it wasn't just about writing checks and collecting money from guests. It was about being involved and, and serving, right, which was, uh, which was awesome. Oh, that is really powerful. Uh- Another word you keep using that we haven't really talked about is the word family. I mean, you've you've used it the entire time we've been talking. I talk to a lot of people who who don't pepper their conversations about work with the word family, mm. Um, mm. And, and it's meaningful. Yeah, I think I don't. I you know I don't know that I know I'm doing it, um, but I think it's uh, it's work and per- work and personal. I don't know. Uh, I think they've never been more blurred. I think everyone wants to be a part of. I'm not met anyone that doesn't want to be a part of something bigger. It may look different for people. It may, um, they may contribute differently to that, but creating a sense of belonging to something bigger than just themselves or creating purpose with a team almost always ends up being um, something just bigger and deeper and, and, and connecting that way. I don't know how to do it any other way. We used to, I used to say like, if this isn't, if you want like, you know, people to know your stuff, this may not be the place for me. <laughs> and there are companies, there are companies like that. Right. Just, I don't know how to operate like that. I don't start meetings with, let's get to business. I start with, how's your mother? How's it? You know, because right. that's the way I was always treated. And, and Doug Brooks at, at Sprinker back in the day, 
when I was a man, I think I was a director maybe, and went away on maternity leave. I mean, I got a phone call. I got cards. I, so I, I was seen, and I felt seen there and felt I belo- like I belonged. Yeah. And I think that's what the restaurant industry can do, no matter who you are. You can find a place where you belong. Uh, and then family just, I guess, comes from that. I think you have to almost earn that. But I think, um, you know, at some point, there, it, is, it is your family. Really neat and, and powerful. So what, one, one last question. I, I can't let you off the hook without asking this because um, I'm sure you'll have something interesting to say. How's that for setup? Uh, what, what advice would you give to somebody starting their career? Not necessarily in any industry, but advice for somebody starting their career. Yeah, I think, you know, there's so much out there today on what people are looking for in a career. It's so much that hasn't changed and so much I think that it is a, a bit different. I, I, I think it's some of it does start with what I just mentioned in terms of the, the lines being blurred. I think today people want to know this is, I'm going somewhere uh, and I want it to be a fit with my lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, I want it to be a value fit. So uh, regardless of the position, I think people starting off their career today should know what they want, perhaps. Doesn't they don't know what they want 10 years from now, but what kind of place do you want to be a part of? Um, I think people look at brands today and the job today and they do think, are they doing something good with what they have? Um, so I, I would suggest to anyone starting today, think about what's important to you and find a place that has those same things inherent in their culture or their values or their purpose um, and find a place you can be proud of. But, but again, one where you really feel like you can make a difference um, uh, and has values that are aligned with yours. Otherwise, it, it's, it's a really hard thing to make it work if those fundamentals aren't there. It, 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 the struggle, it doesn't mean it's wrong, but there are places that just may not be great, you know, for you. And um, I think that's okay too. So be selective in things that really do match and line up with your values. Yeah. Be, be selective is excellent, excellent advice. Um, <laughs> people need to have jobs, but to be selective about what that is, is incredibly important. Yeah. Kelly, thank you so much for the time. I mean, I <laughs> I could keep asking you questions for, for a couple more hours, I'm sure. Uh, but it, this has really been enjoyable, and, and you gave us such an insight into how you operate and then how you work within your within the companies you've been at, where you are today, what's meaningful to you personally. I just really want to thank you for the time. It was really fun and really meaningful. Thank you so much, Kelly. Of course. You're so welcome. It has been so fun to be on the phone with you. I could talk about this for hours and would love to again if you ever want me back. Uh, It's been really a pleasure. I thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Talent Playbook Podcast with our guest, Kelly Valade, President and CEO of TDN2K. If you'd like to learn more about Kelly, you can follow her on Twitter at KVPalooza. She tells me there's a story there. So at KVPalooza. You can learn more about TDN2K at TDN2K.com. And if you want to learn more about St. Jude Children's Hospital, you can find that at stjude.org. You can subscribe and download this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and the Outmatch website. I'd like to thank Kelly for her time. Really enjoyed speaking with her. I'd also like to thank Joni Doolin for the introduction to Kelly. I'd also like to thank Charles Summers and Chris Gardner at Outmatch for their technical assistance. Our theme music is composed by Chris Gardner. Until next time, this is Jason Ferrara saying, 
Thanks for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.